is the Weekend Variety Moments on Radio Live. All right, later on this hour, we've got a cat by the name of Michio Kaku. He's a very, very famous science communicator. You can catch him on YouTube talking about all sorts of big ideas and stuff. He's coming to New Zealand. The Future of Humanity is the name of his tour. Um, we put him on the barbie and grill him later on. I've got some big questions for him. And do stay tuned. Michio Kaku. Uh... Also along a sort of sciencey sceptical bent, which we want to do from time to time on this programme, if you notice. Sceptical Thoughts with Jess McFarlane will be coming up next. This is Radio Live. Don't go anywhere. It's Yeah, it is. Sceptical Thoughts. Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. Have you finished? Thank you. <coughs> Jessica McFarlane with Sceptical Thoughts uh, of this Sunday. Hello, Jessica. Hello, Graham. All right, this anti-vax billboard created a bit of a stir and it was deemed socially irresponsible by the Advertising Standards Authority. Yes, yes, this was great news for us sceptics out there. Um, and it was um, brilliant for all of the 140-odd people that um, wrote to the ASA and actually complained about the billboard. Um, so what the ASA had concluded was it, it the ad wasn't what Waves NZ said it was, which was to promote con informed consent. It was actually really, it was socially irresponsible. It was harmful to children and the community because it was convincing people not to vaccinate. All right, just saying, um, don't, do you know what the actual words were on it? Um, I don't have them to hand, but it was um, something along the lines of um, right. don't put your child in harm's way, something like that. Uh, if you, um, what was it? If you don't know what it's in, what's if you knew the ingredients in a vaccine, would you risk it? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Which oh, it's just it's such nonsense. Um, yeah. And yeah, and it's just it's really ignoring what the the real risks are with which is actually getting the, the illness that the vaccine is created to prevent. Yeah, some people might say, oh, hang on, it's just their point of view, but it's a, kind of a health equivalent of driving on the wrong side of the road, really, isn't it? Yes, exactly, exactly. And it's it's like, it reminds me of the climate deniers who say, oh, well, we can't really do anything, so we might as well do nothing. Mm. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, the billboard owners said that they hadn't put it through the appropriate vetting process and they wouldn't have put it up normally. Yes. Um, yeah, it makes you wonder what sort of vetting process there was then, doesn't it? Or if there is one. Yeah, yeah. But they did, um, to be fair, they did take it down really promptly once okay. they, they had realised what the problem was. All right. Which is, yeah... Regarding vaccines, polio was just an utter terror. I, my mother still tells me of what it was like in the day in the 1930s right. um, in New Zealand. It was absolutely terrifying, an awful disease. We still haven't wiped it out. One of the awful reasons is uh, an anti-vax kind of uh, culture or woo-woo, actually, that is um, still happening around the world. But anyway... There is a poor man. We've got a recording of him here just from the time of polio. He's been in, in, in iron lung for God knows how Polio is a horrible disease. I cannot move. Period. 
Paul Alexander is a polio survivor who spends nearly all day, every day, inside his iron lung at home in Dallas, Texas. He was only six years old when he caught polio in 1952, one of the worst outbreak years in U.S. history. Parents were so afraid of the mysterious, deadly disease that they kept their children from playing with others. Pools, theaters, camps, even schools shut down. Everybody was petrified. With the concept of polio, it, it kind of dominated the summer. But just a few months after Paul contracted the disease, Jonas Salk discovered a vaccine for polio. Oh dear, just a few months afterwards. Mm. Um, it's a reminder that we live quite a charmed existence these days due to vaccines. We do, um, but the the truth is there's, it's a plane ride away. There's, there's still polio around in other countries and, and mm. people can jump on a plane and come to New Zealand and, you know, we, we really do need to keep our vaccination levels up. All right. Um, now, Maureen Pugh, she's been in the news this week in the tape. She was called uh, useless or words to the effect, shall we say, uh, by <laughs> Simon just in the recording. Um, uh, I don't want to pile on her, but this is just a fact of the matter, some information. What's going on? Yes, so um, a sceptical hero, Susie Wiles, um, wrote an article for uh, the spin-off and uh, basically broke down why it's a bit of a worry that Maureen Pugh's now a national MP because her views on pharmaceutical drugs are a wee bit wishy-washy, shall we say. Um, yeah, so um, Susie was referring back to a, to a 2016 article where she was basically saying she hadn't given her children any sort of uh, medical attention or vaccinations or anything and basically just taken them to the chiropractor. What? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Someone who pips at your spine? Uh, yes, this is the crazy thing. So Susie um, broke down basically what chiropractic is all about and how um, Daniel David Palmer in the USA invented it in the 1890s. Um, some would say, oh, it's been going for ages and therefore it's great, you know, that whole, it's, it's been happening for a long time thing and therefore it makes sense, but that, that's nonsense as well. Um, but the key to this whole chiropractic thing is the subluxations, um, which they claim is the basis of all disease. Oh, that sounds scientific. It must be true. Yes, exactly. Um, so I had a wee look into this, and it, our Skeptics website, Skeptics NZ, has got some great information on this. Um, but I just I had a wee look. There's a chiro.co.nz website, and indeed, it's pretty much... Um, there's a lot of of illnesses, including cancer, diabetes, depression, multiple sclerosis, that they claim they can cure or you know mm. treat with chiropractic, which which seems just a little bit of an overreach to me. Which is poking your spine. Uh, yeah. Yes. I mean, uh, great if you've got back pain. I mean, some people do claim, including my mum, that it has helped with back pain, which makes some kind of sense because that's what they're actually prodding. Maybe if they stick, stick to that and get better at it, um, all, yeah. all strength to them, but it's the other claims. It is. It, yeah, it, it just makes you really, all the alarm bells start to ring when mm. they 
they bring up all of these other things that they can cure. Uh, someone um, found Gwyneth Paltrow and she was grilled. We'll just play the audio and we'll get a reaction from you, Jessica McFarlane, New Zealand Skeptics, very shortly. Here we I'm go. looking at a quote from a Canadian gynaecologist. Who, sorry, Gwyneth Paltrow, goop, um, which is a lot of goop, who, who said that, um, this is the quote, and I, I just put okay. it to you in a straightforward way. Uh, she said that uh, using smoke and mirrors to say things that make you happy, make you healthier, is not fair. The suggestion is there's a sort of area of pseudoscience that you're placing your products in. Yeah, we disagree with that wholeheartedly. We really believe that there are healing modalities that have existed for thousands of years, and they challenge maybe a very conventional Western doctor that might not believe necessarily in the healing powers of essential oils or any variety of acupuncture, things that, you know, have been tried and tested for hundreds of years. Um, and we find that they are very helpful to people and that there's an incredible power in the human body to heal itself. And so I think anytime you are trying to move the needle and you're trying to empower women, you know, you find resistance and we just think that's just part of what we do and we're proud to do it. She pulled out the Empower Women card. Oh my God, this drives me insane. Yes. Oh, why? Why is it that women somehow are empowered by crap that we don't need that costs loads of money? It makes no sense to me. Oh. <laughs> it's a droopy marketing device now to deflect any criticism. Unfortunately. Yeah, it seems so. But what gets me is there's there's some stuff on there that sure it's it's nice and it's I suppose it's the kind of stuff that you sell to the worried well. Mm. Um, but you know, I mean, personally, I quite like essential oils. They smell lovely. Yeah. Um, but don't sell it to me like it can you know heal all that that is wrong with me. It's it's just. It's, I like yoga because it stops. <laughs> yes. Yoga's stretching. It's yeah. great. Yeah, yeah, but it's better when it stops. It's, that yeah. makes you feel really, really good. Uh, you know, there was she wheeled out the um, evil Western medicine people and the human power of essential oils. Yeah, yeah. Oh. It's a game uh, skeptics play called bullshit bingo. She was only vibrations short of a um, house. <laughs> yes. Oh boy. And if if you caught at the beginning there, she's like um, when the interviewer was bringing up and a Canadian gynaecologist. Mm. Uh, this lady um, is brilliant. Um, she, oh, what's her name? Her name is Jennifer Gunther, and um, she was in the news because she actually reviewed 161 products on the Goop website, mm. and she actually found out 90% of them could not be sorted by science. Right. Oh, I'm that many. Yep. Uh, okay. Um, I'm sorry, that few. I thought it might have been 99.9, .9, so... <laughs> Yes, I suppose um, she did um, say that, okay, there's vitamin D3 oh. that might have actually been useful for people. Oh, yeah. But, um, yeah, Dr. Jennifer Gunther, she's famous for bringing up the whole jade eggs thing, um, which are... Uh, right, you insert them in, in your foo-foo and that yeah. fixes everything. Yes. Stuff. Um, yes, that, that was concerning for her as a gynecologist. Right. Fufu is yeah. a technical term, people. I'll refer you to Goop <laughs> for that. And also the tested for hundreds of years. If something old, if something's old, it must yeah. be good. That's one of those great claims that convinces many people. 
It does, yes. And and you just have to think back to the pyramids. They were built by slaves, I believe. Oh, yeah. Slaves, but, some, you know, of them, some of them. Some of them. Yes, there were some slaves. Yes, mm. so slaves were around for quite a few years, but I think we're all... Um, well, bring back leeching. That was, that's a good thing, isn't it? <laughs> Le- I think they still have leeching around right. somewhere. Yeah. All right. Yes. Now, uh, a little thing from James Wong here. He's uh, apparently some... Well, you can tell us what he's about straight after we hear this. I'm James Wong. I'm a scientist and a gardener. And I make natural remedies. I want to make people think differently about plants. You can find many of the same drugs that you're used to picking up in your pharmacy growing all around you. It's just like a different type of packaging. I'm not some hippie who believes in flower power. I'm an ethnobotanist trained at Kew Gardens. After studying the use of plants for years, I got recipes to help with minor ailments from coughs and colds to acne and even some beauty treatments to make you look and feel wonderful. All right. Uh, you've got a minute. Tell us about him. <laughs> so I love this guy. He's great. He knows his plants. Um, but he literally is uh, talking bullshit when he goes on about echinacea. That one of the things that he's trying to sell people on is, and uh, in, in his book, Grow Your Own Drugs, is that echinacea is a great cold cure, but there's been absolutely zero clinical trials that have shown that to be the case. And, but you go along the high street, any New Zealand town, and you'll find echinacea in the shops. Okay. So, yeah, in some ways, just by saying that you can have a whole lot of medicine in your own backyard kind of reinforces a lot of the false claims made by uh, the naturopath community. Absolutely. And I, I, it reminds me of um, the idea that, you know, if you want to get uh, gardening advice or um, botany advice, talk to a botanist, but perhaps not medical advice. Perhaps you'd best to go to your GP. Right. Um, a good and fair warning that people can sound scientific and flash, but mm. be dead wrong. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But on the other hand, he did. Um, he was on Twitter recently, calling out a, a mum for saying that raw sugar was so fantastic, and that she was happy to feed that to her children over refined sugar. Oh. Um, which is actually, you know, there is. I absolutely go along with that. Oh. Okay. All right. And it's another thing. People that can, are wrong in one way can be right in another, and you never know. Yes. you find out. Okay, good one. Jessica McFarlane, thank you very much. Good luck with the Skeptics Conference, November the 18th, and we'll talk to you again shortly. Thank you. You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. Hello, hello. Hello. Michio Kaku. Yes. How are you doing? Very good, very good. Michio Kaku, coming to New Zealand. You may have seen him online or on TV. He's a theoretical physicist, very popular, popularizer of science, so that's a job description done, and his books sell in the thousands and if not millions, I don't know actually. Physics of the Impossible, Physics of the Future, The Future of the Mind, and the latest book, The Future of Humanity. Glad to be on the show. All right, first up, the new book, The Future of Humanity. Give us the basic thrust. Well, you know, the dinosaurs did not have a space program. And that's why they're not here today. They got wiped out 65 million years ago. They didn't know it hit them. We do have a space program. And costs are dropping like a rock. Silicon Valley billionaires are beginning to feel their own family of rockets. And so we're going back to the moon. 
we're going to Mars. There's a whole new, a whole new ball game. We're entering a second golden age of space travel. The first golden age was back in the 60s when we went to the moon. But now we have billionaires like Elon Musk of SpaceX, Jeff Bezos, the richest man on Earth fielding his own rockets called the Blue Origin. We have NASA, which is using taxpayers' money, and costs are dropping like a rock. For example, you know that the movie The Martian, starring Matt Damon, great yeah. movie, mm -hmm. that movie cost $100 million. But the Indians put a space probe past Mars for $70 million. So a Hollywood movie about going to Mars actually costs more than actually going to Mars. And that's why we're entering a new golden age. Already the President of the United States has signed into a proclamation. We're going back to the moon starting next year. We're going to send unmanned space probes orbiting around the moon. And then on to Mars, the asteroids, and beyond. So we're entering a whole second golden age of space exploration. You seem very, very optimistic. And I recall the same sort of optimism, let's say, around 1969, when the Beatles released Abbey Road. People landed on the moon. The Concorde took off. The hovercraft were all going to be flying to work. But we found that there were unforeseen complexities, and that optimism was ill-founded. Well, yeah. Take a look at 1966. In 1966, the Apollo space program consumed 5% of the entire U.S. federal budget. Think about that. 5% of every dollar that you paid in income tax uh, in 1966 went to the space program. But people bore that cost because it was national pride. You know, the United States was up against the Russians, so they paid it. But after the United States went to the moon, people lost interest. They realize that it's really, really expensive. But now, however, we have reusable rockets, rockets that can be used over and over again. Plus, as I mentioned, we have Silicon Valley billionaires fielding their own moon rockets. The Falcon Heavy, which was launched a few months ago, sparked tremendous interest on the Internet because that rocket, which was fired from the same launch pad that launched the Apollo mission, that rocket was a moon rocket, fully capable of putting astronauts on the moon. That was a Falcon Heavy. And now Elon Musk is fielding the BFR rocket, fully capable of reaching Mars. And so these are things which once cost tremendous amounts of money, and that's one reason why many of the early ventures, like the Concorde and like the Apollo space program, were not self-sustaining. They couldn't pay for their own keep. And that's why they're for the history books now. If we do go to Mars, and, and I actually think maybe robots will overtake us as far as being more efficient and easier to get there, and we wouldn't in the end know the diff, but it's, is this the future? You call it the future of humanity. Isn't that sort of thing just the future of two or three people? Uh, well, yes and no. Uh, first of all, I once talked to Carl Sagan, the astronomer, and I talked to Stephen Hawking, who recently passed away. And Carl Sagan said, we need an insurance policy. We have to be a two-planet species, because it's simply too dangerous to be on the Earth as one species. And yeah, we could put robots on Mars, but if something bad would happen to the Earth, global warming, nuclear war, killer asteroids from outer space, mm. well, that's it, folks. It's a law of physics, a law of physics that one day the Earth will be destroyed. Okay? And under your feet are all the fossils, under your feet, 
that are now extinct, 99.9% of all life forms go extinct. Extinction is the norm. That's the norm. We, on the other hand, have an intellect, and therefore we're capable of perhaps charting our own destiny. Now, no one's talking about moving the entire population of the Earth onto Mars. No, we're talking about a settlement, a self-sustaining settlement that can pay for itself. So that if anything bad happens to the planet Earth, we have plan B. So we're not talking about moving the entire population of the Earth into outer space. That would be really expensive. No, we're talking about a settlement on Mars, which is well within our capabilities. Elon Musk has already stated that his BFR rocket can take at a time maybe several hundred colonists to Mars at a single launch. And so we're talking about a new age where we have new thinking. Now, we can't think like the 1960s when it was national pride that paid the bills for the Apollo space program. We're talking about a self-sufficient, self-sustaining colony on Mars uh, that could be a new, eventually a new branch of humanity, but basically an insurance policy that we need a backup plan. Physicists do talk about this a lot. Do you talk to biologists about this, the interconnectedness of all life on Earth? It's just so complex. This is our spaceship, Earth, and maybe we should really take care of it. Oh, yeah. Now, no one is saying we should pit the two against each other. That is, either save the planet Earth or go completely to Mars and have a new branch and abandon the Earth. No, no one is saying one of the two. We could do both. We could do both. Because, as I mentioned, we need insurance policy in case something bad happens to the Earth. And biologists are the first ones to say that we should go to Mars because there could be life in the universe outside the planet Earth. Yeah. I mean, why should the planet Earth be the only place where DNA can foster intelligent beings? There could be whole new universes of life forms out there. And biologists are the first ones, the first ones to say that we got to go out there to see if there's life on other planets. 4,000 planets have now been discovered orbiting other star systems, and it's arrogant to believe that we're the only life form in the galaxy when our galaxy could have billions of Earth-like twins. Billions, not simply a handful, but there could be billions of Earth-like planets, and that's the results coming out of the Kepler satellite. Yeah, I personally tend to lurch from thorough pessimism about intelligent life out there and inevitability because the stats are just so massive it's hard to imagine how vast the universe is even just consider our own galaxy how vast that is and the opportunities for life to arise and then that's counted when you think about how rare and just dumb lucky we were to even evolve we nearly got wiped out 75,000 years ago that's right. 75,000 years ago, the Toba volcano in Indonesia erupted, and we think that it might have wiped out most Homo sapiens, that only a handful, maybe a few hundred, just a few hundred of us escaped that devastation to then leave Africa and then populate the entire Earth. We are literally brothers and sisters, Adams and Eves. That handful of people, a few hundred, were the primordial Adams and Eves that created the modern human race. How does that make you feel, though, about your either optimism or pessimism that a technological, intelligent life exists out there? Well, for me, it means that it's a wake-up call. 
that humanity could be wiped out. 10,000 years from now, we have to worry about another ice age. And on a scale of decades, we have to worry about global warming. Life is precarious on the planet Earth. And why not spend a few billion dollars getting a new branch of humanity just in case something bad happens to the planet Earth? And like I said, Silicon Valley billionaires are footing the bill. They're opening up their own checkbooks, not the taxpayers, not you and me. We're talking about billionaires paying for these new generations of rockets that could create eventually a new branch of humanity. So many times in the past, life on Earth was almost wiped out. Millions of years ago, the Earth was covered completely in ice. Mm. We were a snowball Earth. Uh, life forms as we know it went extinct during that period of time. At one point, we had water world. There was no land on the Earth. Every single continent was underwater. And so we realized that many times in the past, life as we know it basically almost went extinct many times in the past. There have been five extinction cycles in the past where almost all life on Earth uh, disappeared. And some biologists feared that we're entering the sixth major extinction. Uh, another comet has hit the Earth called Homo sapiens. We are the ones now that are disrupting the planet Earth. Why not have an insurance policy? It's yep. not going to cost that much compared to the Apollo program. And other people are footing the bill. Yep. My attitude is more power to them. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I, I get that point. I just wanted to discuss, get your idea about what optimism versus pessimism about other intelligent life in the universe. Given four billion years of life on Earth, only one species has built a radio telescope. Would have been nice if two had. And just in the last few hundred years. Yeah. Right? Yesterday. Uh, you're absolutely right. The dinosaurs were here for 200 million years. Not a single dinosaur was able to get calculus or to, to create a calculator. Think about that. They had 200 million. We, on the other hand, we've only been around for about 100,000 years. Yeah. And so that's how rare intelligence is. Intelligence is not everywhere. So we think that microbial life could rather be common throughout the universe. We, I think, are probably, all in all, quite mesmerized that the way we live and the technology that we have is normal. Uh, you just mentioned we've been here for, let's say, around about 100,000 years. So you draw a line of 100,000 years and then point to where we're at now and how long we've had a radio telescope and a rocket. This isn't normal at all. It's sustainable. Well, that's the big mystery, right? This is, in some sense, a great experiment. Yeah. The fact that intelligent beings are now on the planet Earth. Intelligence, we now realize, is quite rare. Microbial life, germs basically, and bacteria could be common throughout the universe, but sentient beings that can control their destiny, that's probably pretty rare. So we are living in an experiment, whether or not we don't blow ourselves apart. Some people have speculated that that's the reason why the aliens don't land on the White House lawn and advertise their existence, because many of them probably blew themselves up uh, millions of years ago. Now, my personal point of view, however, as to why they don't land on the White House lawn is as follows. If you go into the forest, do you talk to the squirrels and the deer? Well, yeah, maybe initially, but eventually you get bored because they don't talk back to you. Squirrels and deers have nothing to offer you. Well, if you're an intelligent being, thousands of years more advanced than humans, we are the squirrels. We are the deer. We have nothing to offer these intelligent beings. And so in that sense, maybe that's the reason why they don't contact us, because we have nothing to give them. And they are far more closely related to us than anything else we could imagine. I'm, I'm being a naysayer here, so you can fire back. 
DNA, life, has only arisen once on Earth as well. It seems a bit disappointing if we're expecting life to be ubiquitous. Uh, yeah, some people have thought that maybe two or three forms of DNA might have been started in over billions of years, but we see no evidence of it. Mm. That one molecule, about three and a half billion years ago, one molecule was created by accident that then gave rise to all the intelligent and sentient living creatures that we see around us, which is um, amazing if you think about it. No, I'm a physicist. When I look at the universe, I realize the universe is very big and very old. But then the question is, why? Why is the universe so old? And then I begin to realize, because it took billions of years to create us, so that we ponder the question, why is the universe so old? So the universe is old because that's how long it took to create us. And so it's very humbling. And we have the ability to destroy that intelligence that took so many billions of years to create. What a waste. What a waste if we blow ourselves up, yeah. given the fact that it took billions of years to create us. And recent history teaches us that we can lose this. We've forgotten as a species how to do some things because we shut up shop on it just very, very recently. I'm thinking about the Dark Ages. God, you know, think about what the right. Greeks managed to get done and then they threw it all away. Right. Now, there is room for optimism. I think technology has a moral direction. Yeah. Most scientists don't believe that. But I think, for example, the Internet. Look at the Internet. It spreads knowledge by spreading democracy. Yeah. We empower people who have no power. And when we empower people, they want to change governments. They want to spread democracy. And democracies do not war with other democracies. Think of every war that you learned ever since you were a child. War between kings, queens, emperors, dictators, but never between two major democracies. And so that's why I think there's optimism here because of the fact that democracy is spreading and with it the forces of enlightenment. I think that's a positive development. Yeah, I thoroughly agree with you. Which tells us, informs us exactly how valuable this interconnected communication is and how we must preserve it and access to it. Yeah, and that's one of the messages I want to present, that with all this technology, there is hope. Some people are kind of pessimistic because they look at computers, they're, they're totally befuddled as to what's happening with this great revolution. But what's happening is that knowledge is spreading throughout the world. Even in the poorest hamlet, you realize that people in the poorest areas of the world get a cell phone before they buy a, a bathtub? Yeah. That's right. They, there are more cell phones in many of these poor countries than there are bathtubs because bathing, well, you can always delay that, yeah. but a cell phone is vital for your, your life, your job, your existence, your, your children, and that's why the Internet is spreading so rapidly, which I think is a good thing because with that spreads knowledge, spreads democracy, and democracies, as I mentioned, don't war with other democracies. I reckon that maybe we'll be able to digitize ourselves virtually, no, literally, uh, colonize other places and not have to carry around this earth-evolved thing which takes such ridiculous amount of maintenance and is so fragile to the life-destroying environments of outer space. Maybe we'll be able to digitize ourselves before we figure out how to maintain a species like ourselves on another planet. 
And once we digitize ourselves, and Silicon Valley is already offering that capability, uh, we'll be able to put that on a laser beam and shoot it into outer space and reach the moon in one second, reach Mars in 20 minutes, and explore the universe at the speed of light. Uh, I call this laser porting. That is putting your consciousness, everything known about your brain, your personality, your internet transactions, your Instagram photographs, all of it, digitized. You live forever. This is called digital immortality. And you can shoot on a laser beam and explore outer space. And then when the laser beam reaches the moon, it downloads that information onto an avatar. The avatar is a robot that looks just like you, except it has superpowers. It's able to walk on Mars, walk on the moon, walk on the asteroids. And I think that in a single day, you'll be able to explore much of the solar system. Think about that. In just a few minutes, you'll be on the different planets like Mars, Venus, and whatever. You'll be exploring the asteroid belt at the speed of light. And I personally ex think that this already exists. I think aliens in outer space don't bother with flying saucers. Yeah. Flying saucers are an old hat to them. Flying saucers are messy. They're dangerous. They crash like an in Roswell. <laughs> I think these people simply laser port themselves across the universe, and this may already exist. Next to the Earth, there could be a laser highway, beings that laser port themselves at the speed of light, and we humans are too stupid to know it. We are so primitive that we don't even know that next to us there could be a superhighway of millions of souls being laser ported at the speed of light. Doesn't that make the idea of colonizing a group of clumsy apes to another planet redundant? Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> we have to realize that the aliens from outer space may consider us as a bunch of apes, in which case they'll probably... We are a bunch of apes. Uh, yeah, we are a bunch of apes, but we're intelligent. That is, we can control our destiny. Yeah, but doesn't the idea of lasering our consciousness around make the, which may be closer than maintaining a, a population on Mars, doesn't that make the population on Mars redundant going for that? It could take a while before we can do this. Right. Already, Silicon Valley companies are offering simple digitization of your credit card transactions and your emails and Instagram photographs. But eventually, maybe by the end of the century, we'll be able to digitize the personality itself. Yeah. There's something called the Connectome Project. And the Connectome Project is the project to digitize every single neuron of the human brain and put it on a disk, in which case we'll be able to understand mental illness, We'll be able to understand the pathologies of, of why the brain goes crazy, and we'll be able to create a copy which is immortal. So, for example, libraries today have biographies of Winston Churchill. In the future, you'll be able to talk to Winston Churchill. Yeah. You'll talk to a digitized image that talks like him, acts like him, has all the memories. And I would love the opportunity to talk to Einstein. I'd love to sit down and talk to a holographic image of, of Einstein, and one day you may also be digitized and you'll talk to your great 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 grandkids because you become immortal yeah well it's just it's telling i think just how amazing a book is and at least winston churchill can speak to us i want to talk about some uh, your area of expertise uh with theoretical physics let's just say physics where are the big scientific revolutions do you think likely to spring from well, we don't know, but we have the Large Hadron Collider, which gives us an inkling of what's inside a proton. And we have these gigantic telescopes in outer space. The Webb telescope is going up into orbit very soon, and it'll be a replacement for the Hubble. The Hubble Space Telescope was a tremendous fountain of knowledge. The new space telescope, the Webb, is going to give us even 
better pictures. We're going to be able to photograph the image of extrasolar planets in outer space. Think about that. Pictures of planets orbiting other stars. This is incredible. And so we'll be able to open up a new chapter in our understanding of the universe with the web, with the tests, with the new generation of experiments at the Large Hadron Collider. It's turned out that everything we know about, have ever, ever known about in the physical world, which is probably all there is, we're a minor pollutant on the edge of dark matter and dark energy. Heavens, that's rather deprovincializing, isn't it? What do you make of dark matter and dark energy? Every high school textbook is being rewritten because they're wrong. Every high school textbook says that the universe is mainly made out of atoms, but that's not true. The universe is mainly made out of dark matter. 96% of the universe is dark matter and dark energy, and we only make up 4% of the universe. And so we're the oddball. Most of the universe is invisible, and we are clueless right now to understand what it is. If you want to win a Nobel Prize, explain what is dark matter and dark energy. Now, the leading candidate for dark matter comes out of string theory, which is what I do for a living. String theory says that all these particles are nothing but vibrations on a tiny, tiny little string, like musical notes. But musical notes have higher octaves. So we think that dark matter represents a higher octave of the string. There is a particle called the photino, predicted by string theory, which is invisible, has gravity, and has all the properties of dark matter. And so we think that dark matter could be nothing but a higher octave of the string. You're familiar with the criticisms of string theory within science. It's quite a debate that it exists entirely in theory, that it's unobservable, untestable. What do you say? Um, I say that's nonsense because all great theories eventually get tested. Uh, we're going to be able to, well, not have a direct test of a string theory, but indirect tests. For example, the search for higher dimensions. That's right, the Large Hadron Collider is looking for evidence of that. Evidence of tiny new particles called mini black holes, which are not dangerous, but predicted by string theory. The Large Hadron Collider is also looking at that. And the Large Hadron Collider may actually produce dark matter in the next series of experiments. So string theory predicts what dark matter should look like, but we don't have it in the laboratory. The Large Hadron Collider may be able to actually create dark matter, in which case we'll be able to test it against experiment. So the only people who say that you cannot test string theory are people who, for the, for the most part, don't understand string theory. Are there observations being made, scientific observations being made, that aren't meshing with string theory? Uh, so far, string theory agrees with all the experiments that have been done. There's something called standard model, which fits the quarks and the neutrons and the protons and the particles of today. We call it the theory of almost everything, almost everything mm -hmm. except gravity and dark matter. String theory predicts the standard model. And so we can predict the electron, the proton, the neutron. But you see, that's not enough. We want to predict everything. And it turns out that string theory has other solutions, other solutions other than the standard model, because it predicts a multiverse of universes. Universes that don't even exist in our universe are also predicted. And so that's one gap in our understanding of string theory. It predicts not only our universe, but it predicts a multiverse of universes as well which I personally believe is true. I personally think there are other universes out there, and these other universes are predicted by string theory. It seems ratcheted in the direction that more we discover, the less we seem to be at the centre of the action. 
Uh, yeah, but you see, this is a whole new era, uh, an era of new discovery, new breakthroughs being made. So I'm like a kid in a toy store or a candy shop looking at all the bright new discoveries, all the bright new instruments that are being created, whole new avenues of ex exploration just waiting for us. And I think it's a great time to be alive. Yeah. Great time to be alive with all these breakthroughs being made. We need people like you that are science communicators and science popularizers. There's one thing though, you know, I'll continue on the naysaying, mainly because it means you can return serve. It felt to me like you gave intelligent design people a bit of a Christmas present by the language that you used. I want you to explain talking about the universe has rules created by an intelligence, it's clear, there's a plan that it's governed, it's shaped and created, all those sort of words. What do you really mean? Oh, well, take a look at how Einstein looked at the question of God. He said that there really are two kinds of gods, and we have to keep them separate. One is the personal God, the God that you pray to at Christmas time for that bicycle, the, the God that smites the Philistines and destroys your enemies. That's the personal God that Einstein did not believe in. He believed in the God of Spinoza, that is the God of beauty harmony, simplicity, that the universe is so gorgeous that it didn't have to be that way. The universe could have been random. It could have been ugly, messy, without any intelligent life. The proton could have been unstable, in which case all matter would eventually dissolve into a mist of electrons and neutrinos. No, our universe is gorgeous. It has life on it. And so he thought that it was not an accident that we exist, that there really is a rhyme and a reason to the universe, but that rhyme or reason is not a personal God that talks to you, that answers your prayers. No, it's the God of the universe itself that give us physical laws. And so I think that's how we should approach the whole question. And then, of course, Galileo was asked about this question, and Galileo said that religion and science are compatible because the purpose of science is to determine how the heavens go. The purpose of religion is to determine how to go to heaven. So, in other words, science is about natural law. While, on the other hand, uh, religion is about ethics, about how to be a good person, how to go to heaven. The problem occurs when people in the natural sciences begin to pontificate about ethics, saying that ethics has a basis in natural law, and when people who are in ethics pontificate about natural law. That's what we get into trouble. However, if we keep those two separate, I don't think that we have any problems at all. Almost all the universe is extremely hostile to life, and now we have dark matter, the idea that it is somehow a beautiful, unchaotic thing. Um, it's a bit of a spanner in the works for that idea, isn't it? Uh, yeah, and the fact that it all fits together, I think, is incredible. Now, some people look at the universe and think that maybe God knew that we were coming because everything seems to be fine-tuned to allow for life. For example, if the nuclear force were a little stronger, then the sun would have been burnt to a crisp billions of years ago. If the nuclear force were weaker, the sun would have never ignited at all. So the sun is just right to ignite to give us life on the planet Earth. Or if gravity were stronger, we would have had the Big Bang and the Big Crunch. We would have been all fired up and crushed by the Big Crunch. And if gravity were a little bit weaker, we would have had a Big Bang and then a Big Freeze, and we all freeze to death. So there's a 
tiny window that allows for gravity to allow for life. There's a tiny window that allows for the nuclear force to allow for stars to shine. And there are many, many windows. So some people think that we are fine-tuned to allow for life, therefore God exists. But you see, there's another way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is that there could be a multiverse of universes out there. Yeah. Most universes are dead. The nuclear force is too strong or too weak. Gravity is too strong or too weak in these other universes. And we're here in our universe to talk about it because we are tuned just right by accident. Isn't that a bit like saying it's amazing that Fifth Avenue was where it is because if it was 20 metres to the left, all those shops would be wrecked. Um, yeah, you know, when I was in second grade, my second grade teacher said that God so loved the universe that he created the earth just right from the sun. Not too close, the oceans would boil. Not too far, the oceans would freeze. Well, that made a big impression on me as a kid. But now, of course, we do find planets that are too close. Yeah. We do find planets, 4,000 of them, that are too far. And that's the norm. The norm is dead planets in yeah. outer space. Yeah. And so that explains the fact that we are just right from the sun, not because we were chosen to be just right, but hey, congratulations, we won jackpot. Ah, but there was a time, as you mentioned, when we were snowball Earth, and if we were uh, evolved at that stage, we would have said, oh, gosh, we really lucked out. Uh, yeah, or life would not be possible at all yeah. because it was too cold to create a DNA. So we're in a universe that's just right, just the right temperature. Just now. Just the right conditions to create DNA. Mitchell Kaku coming to Auckland, New Zealand. I'll give okay, all the dates. Yes, I'm coming to New Zealand and Australia. I'll give all so the dates. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Yep. And this will be my first trip to New Zealand. And, of course, I've been to Australia several times in the past. Well, enjoy your time in New Zealand. Mitchell Kaku, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. From back there, the other side of the commercial break, if you want to go and see Chiyokaku, go to the Weekend Variety Wallace webpage. We've got a direct link for the gigs, if you call them that. Oh, we're an outsider's tale, a World War I affair, a maritime VC, New Zealander. A second later, one of the guns hit one of the German sailors and his body exploded and a large portion hit the commander and knocked him into the sea. Gah. And of course, Glenn Harper will be walking us through the last days of World War One in the next hour.